Good evening, everyone. Well, I'm going to ask you to uh, pray for me. Thank you. You know, I've shared with you that um, my testimony, part of my testimony, when I came from the States... I, uh, my Jamaican accent was so heavy that I would not speak in front of people. And the kids in school would make fun of me anytime I spoke. And so I developed this intense fear of public speaking. And, uh, you know, the Lord has a sense of humor. Amen. And so, um, you know, I was just sharing in the tent that I have uh, nightmares sometimes that I'm standing in front of an audience and um, I have nothing to say. (laughs) Can you imagine having a nightmare like that? Yeah. So it's interesting. I was uh, back there. Some of you may have seen me back there. And, uh, you know, throughout these meetings, I've been like, you know, trying to think about what I'm going to talk about, what should I do here, what should I do there. So I was in the back putting my notes together. And um, as I was putting my notes together for this meeting right now, um, I uh, realized I had to go get my notes printed. So I ran over to the uh, registration booth, printed my notes, and now I can't find them. (laughs) so let's pray (laughs) let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you so much for your your mercy your grace your kindness and Lord we want to ask in a supernatural way today that you would speak to your people We thank you, Lord, for hearing and for setting this situation as it is. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I have to tell you that uh, it's a good thing that I've seen the movie. (laughs) You'll get that later on. We are going to complete our study. Who put these here? I don't need notes. (laughs) We are going to complete our study on the blueprints. And you've seen that um, we have discussed Um, in great detail uh, what it means to present to your Bible study contact um, this big picture. I want to accomplish uh, a couple things as I present this to you. Number one is this. I want you to realize that you are not here 
by accident. I want this study, as we complete this study and wrap it up, I want you to realize that you are not here by accident. That God has chosen you. Like seriously, being in this building right now, God has chosen you to be here at this time. And number two, I want you to realize that God has a mission and a purpose for your life. You all know that God is an author. Did you know that? And did you know that God has a script for your life? He has a script. He has a plan for your life. But the devil is also an author. And he wants to take over your script. I want to encourage you today. Do not let the devil be your author. Don't let him write your story. And no matter how messed up your story is, God can take your story and turn it into something incredible. You know, there are a lot of times that God has to say cut in your script. Cut! What are you doing? (laughs) That's not the plan I have for you. Cut! You're messing up the script. But I I guarantee you that no matter how much you have messed up your script, God can take that script and create the most beautiful stories. So, by the way, I've subtitled this message, uh, Earth's Final Movie. You will find out why at the end. So let's begin with some recap. We are taking our Bible study students through the theme of the great controversy. Where are we going to start? We're going to start with the controversy in heaven. Who was Lucifer? According to Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer, verse 14, Lucifer is described as the covering cherub. And we understand that as we go to the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 25, verse 18 and 19, that the Bible describes there two angels that were found where? In the most holy place. And they were on either side of something called what? The Ark of the Covenant. And they were called what? Covering cherubs. And right in between them was found the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and in particular the Shekinah glory, which then we understand is a blueprint showing us the model of heaven. You'll remember that the sanctuary is a picture, a miniature map, if you will, of the true sanctuary in heaven. We find that Lucifer then stood in the very presence of God, and he was one of the guarding angels over what? The law of God. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 28 that Lucifer, what? Sinned, and according to the biblical definition, uh, what is sin? Sin is transgression of the law. Somebody asked me earlier today, Pastor, do you think that there were two tables of stone in the 
uh, underneath the throne of God in heaven? And I, I answer, I don't know, but I would venture to say that the law was actually summed up in one word, and that was love. And isn't love a reflection of the character of God? Here's what I like to tell people. You know, the angels, all they needed was that word, love. Why did we need the Ten Commandments? Because our minds had become so corrupted by the principles of this world, I like to call the Ten Commandments righteousness for dummies. (laughs) God had to spell it out. This is what love is. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not lie. You get the picture? So in heaven, it was summed up in one word. But on earth, at Mount Sinai, God had to write it out so that we can understand in a very practical sense what love is. So Lucifer sinned. He rebelled against the law of God. And what did we discover? The law of God then is the foundation of God's government, God's throne. Are you, are you imagining this in your mind as, as we go through this? Are you seeing this in your mind? How does Lucifer deceive one-third of angels? How does he get one-third of angels to go with him? Does Lucifer say, hey, who would like to be evil with me? No. no? What is his argument? According to Isaiah chapter 14... He can be like God. What is God like? Good, righteous, loving, holy. In fact, do you know Ellen White says that when Lucifer first began his rebellion, he did not know whither he was going? He didn't know what he was getting himself into? So, of course, yes, now Lucifer is is totally evil, but in the beginning, Lucifer actually thought, I can be just like God without him telling me how to do it. I can be holy without some law dictating to me how to be holy. We find that principle on earth today, yes or no? What is it called? Self what? Righteousness. I don't need God in order to be good. I can be good all by myself. What story comes to mind when you think of this rebellion? What Old Testament story? The rebellion of? Korah, Moses, why are you raising yourself up above the people? Don't you see that they are all what? Holy. It was an argument based on righteousness, if you will. And so the angels, one third of them, go with this argument. They're saying, after all, all Lucifer is saying is that there are other ways to righteousness other than what God has said. Right? One third of the angels are cast out of heaven as a result. There is war in heaven. One third of the angels are cast out. Why doesn't God judge the angels immediately? According to the Bible principle, when controversy rises between two parties, there must be a third party. What verse do we have to back that up? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 through 3 tells us, know you not that the saints will do what? Judge angels. So God creates humanity, among other reasons, for the purpose of serving as a jury. 
The devil understands this and he goes to Adam and Eve and he tempts them and he says, okay, he's saying to himself, if this is the jury that is to judge me, I'm going to do what? I'm going to bribe the jury. And what does he do? He says to Eve, do you want to be like? Same thing he said to the angels. Are you getting this? The more we go over it, it becomes kind of, right? Is it in your mind? Okay, so... Um, he says to Eve, you can be like God without what? Obeying God. Eve sins, and as a result, just like Adam, or just like Satan was put out of the garden, so Adam and Eve, or I'm sorry, just as Satan was put out of heaven, so Adam and Eve, as a result, are put out of the garden. In fact, we find the same principle with Adam and Eve. By the way, where did the rebellion begin? Where did the first church split take place? In heaven. Why? Because Lucifer said, I will sit upon the mount of the the congregation of who? Angels. One third of the angels, first church split, occurred in heaven. If if the devil um, brought about sin in the church in heaven, how much more can he bring it about in the church on earth? Right? The story of Cain and Abel, what is it about? It's about worship. Cain doesn't say, I refuse to worship. Cain simply says, there are other ways to worship other than what God has said. God, be happy, at least I'm giving you something. Do you know anybody with that attitude? God asks for one thing, and they say, well, at least I'm giving you something. Be happy, God, at least I'm giving you a day. You must not have got that at Seventh-day Adventist. God asked for the seventh day. God, be happy. At least I'm giving you a day. It may not be the day you asked for, but at least I'm giving you you a day. Same spirit of who? Cain, which was the spirit of Lucifer. So, Adam and Eve sin, and as a result, God comes into the garden. He tells them they must die, but don't worry. I'm instituting the plan of salvation. So therefore, we understand that, by the way, what, what are the criteria for a juror? He must be what? A law-abiding citizen. Amen. God created Adam and Eve with the law written on their hearts. They must be able to do what? Discern between... Good and evil, and they must not be swayed by what? Public Public opinion. opinion. The devil comes to Adam, comes to Eve in the garden, and says, "Do you want to be? You want? uh, You will be. You can be like God. The Hebrew word for God, Elohim, also signifies judges. You want to be a good judge, Eve? Eat from this tree, and then you'll really know the difference between good and evil." She eats from the tree, and what happens? She loses her ability to discern between good and evil. Don't be so quick to say, I don't see anything wrong with... Maybe you didn't get that either. (laughs) Don't be so quick to claim that there is nothing wrong, there is no difference between good and evil. When you do that, you naturally eliminate yourself as a sound juror. 
So God comes to the garden and he promises Adam and Eve. He, he says you must die, but he promises them uh, uh, a coming Messiah. And we understand that the Messiah's whole mission is then to restore mankind to being what? Sound jurors. Law-abiding, able to, to discern between good and evil, and unswayed by public opinion. Your Bible study contacts should now feel, man, what a privilege and an honor to be selected as a juror on behalf of God. Yeah. Beloved, you have a mission. If we go no further in this message, God has called you to be a juror. You know what? If someone had told me 15 years ago with my dreadlocks, marijuana smoking, pants sagging self, you're supposed to be a juror. I'd be like, what? <laughs> a who? A what? Do, can you see? The devil knows if he can eliminate the jurors, there can be no what? No trial. Hung jury, if you will. And so think about the, the next time you see a hoodlum out there on the street, the next time you see some punk rocker, the next time you see some guy in jail who's just like, or some, think, don't think, look at that guy, think, man, this guy or this girl doesn't even know who he or she is. They don't know the high calling that God has for them, and the devil is busy trying to keep their true identity away from them. So, we know that the plan of salvation is to restore mankind to being what? Sound jurors. We fast forward a little bit. We get to the book of Exodus. And we find, we skip just a little bit of history. But we find that God has covenanted with Abraham as he did in Genesis. He covenanted with Abraham that he was going to rise up a special people. Through which what? The Messiah would come. And what does God give? In the book of Exodus, God gives the children of Israel something special, something vitally important to the history or the future of mankind. And what is it? It is the blueprint. The sanctuary. And uh, inside the sanctuary, there are what? Vital. There is vital information for the redemption of mankind. So now imagine with me, here is the here are the people of Israel and they have vital information, military information in their possession. What is the adversary going to try to do? He wants to destroy the people and destroy the what? The blueprints. And so as you go and you begin to read through the Old Testament, what you find is that the Old Testament is really the story of God trying to get his people to, to uh, understand and uh, to protect and secure this blueprint, to understand it for themselves so that when the Messiah comes, they will be ready to take the gospel where? To all the world. Do you guys remember the blueprint? Let's, uh, let's look at the blueprint. What do we see happens here? Altar of sacrifice, which is in the outer court. This is where Jesus died. The, um, brazen, the uh, 
what the laver, this is where the priest would wash their hands and feet. The table of showbread, by the way, what does that laver represent, everyone? What does the altar represent? What does the table of showbread represent? The word of God. How do we know that? Man shall not live by bread alone. What does the altar of incense represent? Prayer. How do we know that? Revelation chapter 8, speaking of the, the uh, prayers of the saints rising with the incense. Very good. Uh, what does the uh, seven-branch candlestick, oh, what does the seven-branch candlestick represent? Witnessing. Witnessing. How do we know that? Jesus said, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then we have the most holy place, which represents what? The law of God. Now remember, what are these two things on either side of the Ark of the Covenant? The cherubim. Get the picture then. When, we, when uh, uh, Lucifer sinned, he was cast out of the presence of God. He's out here. Okay? When mankind sinned, he was cast out of the presence of God. He's out here. The sanctuary is the GPS, and someone gave me what that means today. God's prophetic system. iPad. (laughs) So this is the GPS that guides us back to the presence of God. Do you see that? So imagine then, here is the cross, right? And uh, think about it. The devil does not want you to get to the cross, does he? So let's say that the devil, you're trying to get to the cross. Guess what? The devil is going to have a line of like 10 demons trying to stop you from getting to the cross, getting right there. So he'll have you out there partying, living your own life, doing your own thing. He's like, uh, demons, whatever happens, do not let this young man Get to the cross. Something happens. You come to a powerful message. You hear something. You say, I want to give my life to Jesus. And you give your life to Jesus. You have broken through that barrier of demons. Praise God. And you know what the demons say? The demons say, oh, woohoo! all right, you made it. You can hang out right there now. Great, great job, great job. You know why? Because if there were 10 demons trying to stop you here, guess how many they are here? 20. Reinforcements. Don't let this guy, don't let this girl actually take the next step in the plan of salvation and be what? Baptized, born again. Don't let that happen. But by the grace of God, you break through that barrier and you're baptized. If there were 20 demons here, (laughs) there are 50 right here. (laughs) Okay, man, great. You've been baptized and, and, oh, you gave your life to Christ. Oh, great. You don't need to study the Bible for yourself. Uh, Let the pastor do it for you. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so what we see is that at every stage, there are demons trying to stop you from advancing in your Christian walk. And if there are 50 demons here, 100 demons here, 150 demons here, there's like a million demons here. Whatever happens, do not let him get back to the secret place 
of the Most High. Now, as you're sharing this with your Bible study contact, you need to ask him. You need to ask her, where do you want to be on this chart? I want to be right there. Right? Okay, so. Where did I point to? <laughs> there, there, there. <laughs> I want to be there. Okay, good. You were like, man, Pastor, pa- point it off the chart. <laughs> okay. So. We are spanning the history from, from heaven past. We come down through the whole Old Testament, and now we get to the prophetic portions of the Bible, the book of Daniel in particular. And Daniel's first prophecy, not in, in a sequence in terms of the chapters of the book, but the first time prophecy is what prophecy? The 70-week prophecy, right? And that prophecy takes us from when? 457, where the angel gives the beginning point of that prophecy from the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Don't get confused on that. You know, go home, study that. Remember, you're going to have work to do yourselves. Amen? So don't get discouraged if you're, 457, what's he talking about there? Just follow me as as best you can. Remember, you got to go home and fill in the blanks and make this thing your own. Okay, so... 457 B.C. is the date given to begin counting the 70 weeks. And if you count 70 weeks, you come to 34 A.D., which concludes a period of time which demonstrates or which, in which certain things happened. What were those things that happened? God basically said during the 70-week prophecy, by the way, I was told tonight that I could have as much time as I want to. <laughs> so please, I hope nobody starts doing this. 10 minutes. (laughs) Okay, so I'm I'm not going to keep you here on that, I promise. So the 70-week prophecy is God basically saying to Israel, Israel, you have messed up so much, I'm giving you 70 weeks to get it together. You are totally not living according to the blueprint. You're not acting out the things. You're not living up to the light I'm giving you. You have 70 weeks to get it together because in that time period, who is coming? The Messiah. And if you reject the Messiah, you therefore forfeit the right to carry this blueprint to the world. Why? Because Jesus is the very center of that blueprint, correct? And so what happens? The 70 weeks comes, Jesus comes upon the scene, and what does Israel do? They reject the Messiah. The veil in the temple, the earthly temple, was what? Ripped in two, signifying what? That the sanctuary is of no more use, the earthly sanctuary. Man's attention is now to be focused on the heavenly sanctuary. And Israel, as a nation, was no longer the people of God, Now there was a what? Spiritual Israel. In other words, God takes the blueprint out of the hand of the literal Israel and puts it into the hands of spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel, you are commissioned to do what? Take this gospel to the world. Here's something interesting. That 70-week prophecy, the disciples... When Jesus came upon the scene, they were so excited that Jesus was here, weren't they? 
Jesus is here. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies. And you know what they thought? They thought Jesus was coming to set up a kingdom where? On earth. Yes, Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom on earth. And it was as though Jesus was saying to them, guys, I'm going to die. In one ear and out the other. Their excitement, in their excitement, they overlooked key things in the prophecy. Is anybody with me? And so what happens? Jesus dies, and everybody starts laughing at the disciples. Ah, you were preaching false prophecy. Did the disciples experience a great disappointment? A few days later, Jesus comes back on the scene. He speaks to them, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and their hearts burn because they realize Wait a minute, Jesus wasn't coming to set up his kingdom on earth. He was coming to die for our sins and resurrect to enter a heavenly sanctuary in heaven. You know what the people around them said when they started going around saying, Jesus is risen, he's risen from the grave? Oh, oh, so that's your explanation of the great disappointment, huh? Is, is any, anybody thinking with me? <laughs> That's your, oh, he's in some heavenly sanctuary now that nobody can happen to see. Sure, great face saving. Hmm. <laughs> Keep in mind that the 70 week prophecy is the first part of a much larger prophecy called the 2300 day prophecy, which would end in when? 1844. But we're not going there yet. So, after Israel has passed off the scene, the next time prophecy is what? The five-third or the 1260-year prophecy. And during this time period, it is prophesied that, that uh, spiritual Rome, who is that? That would be the papacy would attempt to attack who? Spiritual Israel and also attack the, spirit, the, 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 the blueprint or the spiritual sanctuary, which is where? In heaven. Now, how do we know that? What verse can we think of that speaks about spiritual Rome attacking the heavenly sanctuary? Daniel chapter what? Chapter 8, verse 12 through 14, which speaks of the little horn casting down the truth to the ground and also cast the place of God's sanctuary being what? Cast down. So what do we have happening here? Are you all following the, the storyline? Yes. So what's happening here? The papacy, having cast down the sanctuary, is basically another way of saying that during this time period, this church would direct men's attention from the truths of the heavenly sanctuary to the things of this earth. Okay? I want you to notice here. See if we can go back to our chart. 
We're going to go back to the sanctuary. And um, let's talk about this for a moment. First of all, how did the papacy attack the heavenly sanctuary? What does this article of furniture stand for? The cross. What does the cross represent for us? Christ's sacrifice. His what? One-time sacrifice on our behalf. Amen? Amen. You know what the church started to, te- started to teach? That through the Eucharist, Christ could be killed or sacrificed over and over again. Not only did they teach that, but what they were basically saying was, look, the one-time sacrifice of Christ is not enough. You must do penance and all kinds of other things in order to be saved. You can't just, like, come to Jesus. Um, You have to beat yourself. So let's say they had, no, not, not let's say, they had taken away the truth of the altar sacrifice. What about this here? This represents what, everyone? Baptism. How did the church take away that truth? Sprinkling instead of what? Submersion. They began to sprinkle babies. Babies need to be saved because if they die, they're going to hell. So they would sprinkle babies. And so it took away the truth that in order for a person to truly have been accepted by God, he or she must make a what? Conscious Conscious decision. Not only did they take away baptism, not only did they take away uh, um, uh, the the one-time sacrifice of Christ, but they also took away the table of showbread. How'd they do that? What does this represent? The Word of God. No, you can't have a Bible. Depend upon us. You can't understand the Word of God for yourself. This is all history. Isn't it amazing? This is all history. You can't depend upon the Bible for yourself. And by the way, tradition is just as important, if not more important, than the Word of God. What about the altar of incense? No, you can't go pray to God for yourself. You've got to come through the priests. You've got to pray through Mary and the saints. You don't have direct access to God. What are you, crazy? You're a sinner. (laughs) In fact, you'll remember that we talked about this. Remember, the sanctuary, the holy place and most holy place were two rooms divided by a curtain. Here was the presence of God and here was the presence of man. Well, guess what they did? Set up a two-compartment room with a curtain between called a confessional booth with the priest Sitting in the place of hearing the confessions of men. As for the seven branch candlestick, witnessing, here's how they witnessed. Believe us or be burned. Fire. (laughs) That's how they witnessed. And then finally, we get into the most holy place. And what did we have dwelling between the two, the, two, the, the two cherubims? The Shekinah glory. God himself. Isn't it interesting that they have a man at the head of the church whom they call Holy 
Father. And as far as the law of God is concerned, we know the church says we are the ones that had power to do what? Change the commandments. The second, graven images, and the fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So what we have here is that the little horn does the same thing that Satan did in heaven. We don't need a law. God's government needs reform. The Bible says that the little horn would cast down the sanctuary, but we're told that the 2300-day period would bring about a total what? Reformation of truth. It would bring about a total restoration of truth. 2300 days ended when? 18... 44, you count from 457 B.C., 2,300 years takes you down to the year 1844. Now, I need to show you something which is absolutely mind-blowing. And part of this, I'm going to give credit to my dear friend and little, pro- little brother, Taj. Ooh, this is good stuff. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to get excited for you now. Ooh, this is good stuff. <laughs> So, I want you to notice this. It's incredible that God would begin to restore the sanctuary truths way before 1844. So, you have here in your charts, in your books here, I want you to turn here with me. And I want you to notice towards the end of your book... You have a chart that says, uh, it should say, this gospel. 1844, this gospel. Do you see it here? 1844, this gospel. And I want you to notice with me, in the 1300s, in the when, everyone? 1300s, there was a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Anybody know who that is? (laughs) The morning star of the Reformation. What did he do? He translated the Bible into the common language of the people. Question, what article of furniture did he restore, begin to restore in the 1300s? The table of showbread. Wow. 1300s. Praise God. But listen to this. In the 14 to 1500s, another man comes on, upon the scene, and his name is Martin Luther. Who's Martin Luther the founder of? Lutherans. You know what? If I was living in the 14 and 1500s, guess what I would be? A Lutheran. You know what Martin Luther does? Not only does Martin Luther build upon this theme of the Bible and the Bible only, but he also restores the truth of justification by faith. You don't need to flog yourself and beat yourself and all these things. You simply accept Jesus Christ. In the 1500s, another man comes up on the scene. His name is John Calvin. John Calvin is the founder of the Presbyterians. And John Calvin's focus 
is prayer. It's said that John Calvin is one of the most prolific authors on prayer. What article of French are we looking at here? The altar of incense. Very good. In the 1600s, look at what we're doing. When did we start? 1300s? 1400s? 1500s? In the 1600s, John Smith of the Baptist is set in history to be the founder of the Baptist movement. And guess what truth they restore? Baptism by immersion. Oh, wow. Do you see the articles being restored? Don't jump ahead of me. Stop looking in your books. Man, you guys are just cheating. In the 17... You're taking away my excitement. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. In the 1700s, another man by the name of John Wesley comes upon the scene, and he is the founder of who? The Methodists. And his mission is evangelism. Taking the gospel into the world, witnessing missionary societies. And so what does he replace? The seven-branch candlestick. Now, what? 1300s? 1400s? 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, where are we now? Coming to the 1800s. (laughs) What, What is left to be restored before the sanctuary is once again set in its right place? What? Can somebody say who? Thank you. (laughs) Beloved, listen to me. You are here for a reason. You could be anywhere in the world right now. You could be part of some crazy, but you could be. God has you here. What more evidence do you need that God loves you? What movement would come upon the scene in the 1800s to focus on the final part of the Reformation? Seventh-day Adventists. What? You have a chart on your page right there. It's from Wikipedia that shows you this. It doesn't have John Wycliffe on there, but it shows you all the rest of them from the 1400s onward. Look at it for yourself. I'm not making it up. At the end of this 2300-day prophecy. Now, by the way, let me, let me put a pause right here and let me explain to you what, what I'm doing. You're not giving your Bible study contact everything I've told. This is, this is over a period of months of Bible study. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm giving you like three months in three meetings. <laughs> okay? And so it is your job, as you're giving your student this study, it is your job to break, give him as much as he can take, Pause right there, and you continue on the next study, but you're moving in a sequential order. You're painting a picture for him or her. Amen? Amen. So that when they get there, you know, it was so beautiful. I was studying with my Baptist, 
my Baptist friends, and, and I was giving them this particular study. And I said, well, you know, I said, man, you know what? If I was in the 1600s, I would be a Baptist. <laughs> and they were so happy. Yeah. <laughs> And then I said to him, if I was living in the 1700s, man, I would be a Methodist because that would be where present truth was. Because all these groups would build off of the truths that came before them and add. And then I said, let me ask you something. What movement, what movement would be the movement to restore the final piece of the puzzle? Seventh-day Adventist, huh? <laughs> Wow. Wow. No argument, no debate. 1844, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get the significance of the... I get it. This is a non-Adventist. Do we have any Adventists in here that don't get 1844 sometimes? A non-Adventist. Oh, I get it. Why? Because he saw the big picture. Are you with me? And by the way, what do we know? At the end of the 2300 days, there were just around the end of the 2300 days, there was a group of people that got so, Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom on earth. And in their excitement, they missed a couple of things, huh? And they ended up with a great disappointment. And it turns out that the very thing that was to kill the movement, remember Jesus died? Oh, he's dead. That truth is going to kill this movement. The very truth that was to kill the movement became the cornerstone of the movement. Yes, Jesus died and is risen. That was the cornerstone of the movement. Well, guess what? The very disappointment that was supposed to be the end of the Adventist movement becomes the very cornerstone. Take away that disappointment and you take away the purpose of our movement. Heartburn. (laughs) Mercy. Hmm. Oh yeah. Jesus wasn't coming to earth. He's moved from holy place to most holy place. (laughs) Good one. Right. That's a nice face-saving one if I ever heard one. (laughs) Isn't that right, guys? (laughs) Huh? Isn't that the same thing that happened at the end of the 70 weeks? Oh, yeah, right. Jesus has ascended. Oh, that's a good one. The same thing. Oh, yeah, Jesus moved from holy place to most holy place. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. And you know what? The people that rejected the truth that Jesus had entered into the heavenly sanctuary in 70 AD were no longer the people of God. In the same way, the people that reject the truth that Jesus had moved from holy to most holy, were now called Babylon. (sighs) 
Do you see this movie unfolding in your mind? <laughs> What a theme. This is God saying, I'm going to save humanity. I'm going to get this plan to them. And this is the devil trying everything he can do first on earth. And then in, he's trying everything he can do to stop the blueprint from doing what it's supposed to do. And now we get down to 1844 and God rises up our last day people. This is like the end of the movie, guys. <laughs> You know the part where your blood starts rushing and your heart starts beating because you're like, what's going to happen now? <laughs> I'm trying to get you excited. Heartburn. Heartburn, beloved. You are the final actors in the final scenes of Earth's history. God has called you for such a time as this. Amen. And so now, and so now, as, as this, what Ellen White calls the great drama of the ages. Yes. Now we're coming down to the final scenes and God, it's like he hands off the blueprint, the restored blueprint to those last day people. And he says, this gospel is now to go into all the world. Not the gospel of, hey, we were saved by, you know, doesn't matter what you do, Jesus loves you. No, this gospel, this restored gospel is to go into all the world. And the three angels' messages begin to take their flight. Amen. If you read the context, the three angels' messages comes right before the final harvest of the earth. What does that tell us? That the three angels' messages are the final messages to prepare mankind to what? Enter, no, let me put it this way, show up for jury duty. Amen. <laughs> Do you get what that means? 1844 simply began jury selection. This is what's going on right now. Jury selection. I want to be a part. Of, how many of you would like to be a part of the jury? That's why God is telling us to preach a message. Look, the jurors have to keep the commandments of God. Otherwise, they can't. Be jurors because that's going to be the basis of the judgment. If they're up in heaven, can you imagine being in heaven like this is during 1,000 years and we're talking about the devil and, you know, and the devil did this. And then you see a hand in the back. Well, wait a minute now. Aren't we being a little bit too hard on the devil? <laughs> can I tell you something? There will be no devil's advocates in heaven. <laughs> It's not going to happen, though. So if you're the devil's advocate now, please, I pray, don't, don't, don't be his advocate. <laughs> don't. God is saying jurors who, who will be selected, and by the way, only jurors will be saved. Amen. So there's really either I'm a juror or I'm lost. So God now has this message, go into all the world and preach this gospel, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven, the earth, the sea and all that in them is. This is the first angel's message. And as you're sharing this now with your friends, they can understand the context of the first angel's message because they see it in the light 
of the big picture. Man, I want to be a part of that first angel's message. I want to be a part of the closing scene, the closing work. They begin to understand the significance. Don't give them a study on the first angel's message first. You ever give, give somebody a study on the Sabbath and then they go, well, why is it important? And you're like, we just went through why it was important. You want to know why? Because most of the times they didn't see it in its larger context. And now they can begin to understand when you share with them the second angel's message, come out of Babylon. I said to my friends, so you know what Babylon represents? Babylon represents any church that is teaching that the law of God's been done away with. Any church that teaches that the Sabbath has been changed. Any church that teaches against any of these truths that have been restored. And what were some of the other things that came in during the dark ages? The per- teaching of purgatory. The twisting of the character of God that God burns people forever and ever and ever. All those things become part of that cup of the wine of Babylon and anybody teaching or anybody drinking of that cup better put it down. Praise God that there are people today in the Adventist church who can say I'm Tom Henry and I was once an alcoholic. (laughs) But I put down the cup. I'm no longer a drinker. I have put down the wine of Babylon. And by the way, you know what the wine of Babylon is. You know, in Proverbs, can I turn here with me very quickly? Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. I'm sorry, Proverbs 31. That's what I actually meant. Proverbs 31, and I want you to notice this. Verse 3. Give not thy strength unto women. Pause right there. (laughs) Okay, whoa, man. Come on, God. Think spiritual with me. (laughs) Okay, women. Where does the book of Revelation talk about women? The churches. Right? Listen, give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink what? Wine or for princes strong drink. Why? Lest they drink and what? Forget the law. Oh, oh, <laughs> listen to me. What does the wine of Babylon What does the wine of this woman cause the kings and the people of the earth to do? It causes them to forget what God said to remember. (laughs) It causes them to forget what God said to remember. What did God say to remember? The Sabbath day. That's why we shouldn't drink the wine of Babylon. So that second angel's message is going forth saying, put down the cup, put down the cup, put down the cup. (laughs) And the third angel's message, if any man receive the mark. 
And here we begin to understand the significance. We all understand what the mark is. We understand that it is a sign of rebellion against God. Where is the mark received? It's received in the forehead. Why is it received in the forehead? Because it is a counterfeit of the seal of God, which is also received in the forehead. And what is the seal of God? The Bible says, seal the law among my disciples. So the law of God written in the forehead, the mark of the beast, is a counterfeit version of the law of God. Received in the forehead or in the hand. Remember, who, who are going to be most deceived by this mark? If the mark is a counterfeit of the seal of God, who will be foremost in saying, I want this mark? Deceived Christians. Deceived Christians. The time is coming where they that kill you will think that they are doing what? God service. And we know the whole history of, you know, what happens in the last days and the, all the, you know, the time of trouble and all those things. So we're going to fast forward a little bit and we're going to get down to that time when Jesus comes again. And what is he coming for? Who is he coming for? He's coming for his jurors. You ask your study contact, hey, do you want to be ready when Jesus comes? You want to be taken that way? Would you like to enter the Supreme Court of Heaven? You got to be a sound juror, a law-abiding juror, a juror that is not swayed by public opinion. Hmm. You know, in that Old Testament sanctuary, at the end of the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come out of the sanctuary and he would lay hands on the scapegoat Azazel. What did that symbolize? That he was putting the sins of all the people on. Do you guys understand how that works? Let me, let me explain to you very, let me give you an illustration that will help you. We're getting ready to wrap it up, so just bear with me. I'm going to give you an illustration that you will never forget that will explain to you how the sanctuary works. You know that when a person sinned, they would uh, lay their hands on the head of an animal. The animal would be sacrificed and the blood was taken into the sanctuary, whether it was the uh, altar outside or the uh, altar in the sanctuary itself and it was sprinkled upon that altar. What was happening? Sins were being transferred from me to what? To the lamb, to the blood, the blood taken and put in the sanctuary, the sins were now being placed where? In the sanctuary. Let me ask you something. Was I, was I clean after I did that? Were the sins separated from me? Was I forgiven? Yes. But was the sin gone? Where was it? It was in the sanctuary. So just imagine that day after day, day after day, sins are piling up in the sanctuary, okay? One day of the year... The high priest would come, and it was called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would cleanse the entire sanctuary of the sins that had been what? Recorded there. He would take those sins, and he would take them and put them on the head of the... He would lay hands on the scapegoat and send the scapegoat where? Out into the wilderness. Let me give you an illustration. Every day, you guys put garbage in your kitchen. 
in your trash can, right? You clean up the house. You put garbage in the trash can. Is your house clean? Yes. You're excited? Yes. Is the garbage still with you? Yes. But your house is clean. Yes. So what do you do with that garbage? You take it and you put it outside, you know, where all the garbage goes, right? Day after day, you clean your house and you take the garbage and you put it out by the side. Is your house clean? Yes. But is the trash still with you? Yes. Now, one day out of the week. Say, <laughs> 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 right? so, yeah, yeah, yeah. One day out of the week. You know that day? It's, yeah, for some of you it's Thursday. Mm. You know what happens, right? You're saying to yourself, must remember to put the garbage out. You take the garbage, all the garbage that's been piling up there throughout the week, you take it down to the front. Why? Because the, gar- the great grand garbage truck is going to come. And it takes that garbage, and you know what happens if you don't put it out, right? You're stuck (laughs) with that garbage. Oh, oh, what a feeling. (laughs) The garbage truck comes, it takes the dump, and takes it out into a desolate place. Heartburn, yeah. So listen, it operates the same way with us. We sin, we say, Lord, forgive me. Those sins go to the heavenly sanctuary. We are cleansed, we are clean. But the sin is actually still there. You know why? Because we can always say, you know what, give me that sin back. But the time is coming where God begins to remove all those sins. That's the day of atonement. That's the day of judgment. That's the time we've been living in since 1844. And now we read in Revelation 20 that this angel appears and the Bible says he lays hold. The Greek is lays hands on. (laughs) He lays hands on. Look it up in your Strong's Concordance for the word laid hold. You'll see there lay hands on. What's happening? A transfer of sin is being placed on the devil. And where is he sent? Into the wilderness. God's people at the same time prepare for jury duty. And for 1,000 years, we enjoy the glories of heaven, but also must be involved In the work of the final what? Judgment. The end of the 1,000 years comes. God and his people descend. The wicked are raised up. And beloved, this is where earth's final movie takes place. Listen to me as I close in reading. The Great Controversy, page 6. 67. As soon as the books of records are opened and the eye of Jesus looks upon the wicked, they are conscious of every sin 
which they have ever committed. They see just where their feet diverge from the path of purity and holiness. Just how far pride and rebellion have carried them in the violation of the law of God. The seductive temptations which they encouraged by indulgence in sin, the blessings perverted, the messengers of God despised, the warnings rejected, the ways of mercy beaten back by the stubborn, unrepentant heart, all appear as if written in letters of fire. Then, Above the throne is revealed the cross. And like a panoramic view, beloved, this is Earth's final movie theater. Everyone will be there. And in panoramic view, all of humanity from the time of Adam down to the end will watch this movie. Above the throne is revealed the cross and like a panoramic view appears the scenes of Adam's temptation and fall. The successive steps in the great plan of salvation. The Savior's lowly birth, his earthly life of simplicity and obedience, his baptism in the Jordan, the fast and the temptation in the wilderness, his public ministry unfolding to men heaven's most precious blessing, the days crowded with deeds of love and mercy, the nights of prayer and watching in the solitude of the mountains, the plottings of the envy. Hate and malice which, which, which repaid his benefits. The awful, mysterious agony in Gethsemane. Beneath the crushing weight of the sins of the whole world. His betrayal into the hands of the murderous mob. The fearful events of that night of horror. The unresisting prisoner forsaken by his best loved disciples. Rudely hurried through the streets of Jerusalem. The Son of God exultingly displayed before Annas. Arraigned in the high priest's palace, in the judgment hall of Pilate, before the cowardly and cruel Herod, mocked, insulted, tortured, and condemned to die, all are vividly portrayed. Earth's final movie. Beloved, listen to me. You and I, have seen the movie. <laughs> Do you want the wicked saying, wait a minute, you saw the movie? And you didn't tell me about it? Wait a minute. You're the same one that told me about Star Wars. You told me about Harry Potter. You told me about this movie and that movie. You didn't tell me about this movie. And now before the swaying multitude are revealed the final scenes. 
the patient sufferer treading the path to Calvary, the prince of heaven hanging upon the cross, the haughty priest and the jeering rabble deriding his expiring agony, the supernatural darkness, the heaving earth, the rent rock, the opened, the rent rocks, the open graves, marking the moment when the world's redeemer yielded up his life. The awful spectacle appears just as it was. Satan and his angels and his subjects have no power to turn from the picture of their own work. Each actor recalls the part which he performed. Did you realize that you are an actor in a real live movie? Each actor recalls the part which he performed. Herod, who slew the innocent children of Bethlehem that he might destroy the king of Israel. The base Herodias, upon whose guilty soul rests the blood of John the Baptist. The weak, time-serving Pilate. The mocking soldiers, the priests and rulers, and the maddening throng who cried, His blood be upon us and our children. All behold the enormity of their guilt. They vainly seek to hide from the divine majesty of his countenance, outshining the glory of the sun, while the redeemed cast their crowns at the Savior's feet, exclaiming, he died for me. Beloved, what role will you play in this movie? What role are you playing in this movie? Beloved, listen to me. It's never too late to switch roles. <laughs> you can always say, ah, you know, I kind of don't like this role I'm playing. Bad guy, tough guy, don't like Jesus. I can do my own thing. Eh, can I get a different role, Jesus? <laughs> he will be glad to provide you with a new role. I want to make a special appeal tonight. This will be an appeal that may be very difficult to understand, to, 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 to receive. But it might be one person in this room today, tonight. You realize that your role is going to get you cut. <laughs> you know what it's like to be cut out of a, <laughs> you didn't make the cut. <laughs> you ever heard that? You know, did I make the cut? No, you didn't make it. Beloved, do you want to be one of the wicked that do not make the cut? I want to play a part in that everlasting movie. <laughs> Where there is no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. Beloved, tonight, you may be in a role that is, that is nothing, that is leading to nowhere but getting you cut. And you're saying tonight, Lord, I want to switch my role. I want a new role. Please, Lord, give me a new role. I'm asking you, would you stand to your feet? I want a new role. I want a new role. Beloved, what greater evidence can God give you that he has called you as part of a greater theme? 
What greater evidence can he give you that you are not here by chance? Listen to me. Right now, there is somebody whom the devil is fearing. Please don't let this one stand. Don't let this girl stand. Don't let this guy stand because if he stands, if she stands, they're going to cause much damage in my kingdom. Beloved, why, why, why will you play the role that the enemy has provided for you? Give me a new role, Lord. I want a new role. Beloved, listen to me. Tonight, you have seen the most important movie you will ever see in your life. The world is waiting to see this movie. They're not going to see it on the big screen. Hollywood is not going to show it to them. And so the responsibility is with you to know this movie, this drama of the ages, and share it with a world in darkness. I want to appeal one more time. Praise God for those of you who are standing and there's one of you, there may be two of you or three of you, I don't know who you are, but, but you feel the battle going on right now. Beloved, can I tell you? Woo! Oh my goodness. Do you know that one day in heaven we will look back at that time and we will see this part of the movie where angels were standing over you saying, don't get up, don't get up, don't get up. And you cried out to God and said, God, please deliver me. And you will see this rush of angels and send those angels back. And that's when you stood. Our eyes will be opened to the things which we cannot now see. I'm asking you, if that's you, if that's you, cry out to God now and say, God, remove the doubts from my mind and help me send angels to get me to rise to my feet because I can't do it by myself. Cry out now. Heavenly Father, Lord, even now I sense that there is intense warfare. Lord, some of your young people are here and they are being lured down a road to deception. 
But Lord, they've heard a message tonight that is stirring their hearts and they are wrestling. Lord, I pray they may not even have enough strength to pray. I pray on their behalf, Lord. Send angels that will deliver them from that captivity and Lord, cause them to stand even now. Cause them, Lord, to make a decision for you now. Father, you have granted us the divine blueprint. Lord, help us to fulfill the mission you have given us. Every person in this room, you have called to take that blueprint to the world. Lord, help us to know it in and out. And Father, who we look forward we look forward to that final scene. No, Lord, not of the destruction of the wicked, but when those end credits roll, showing the end of this old earth and the beginning of a new kingdom. Oh, Lord, may we as actors in this most solemn and incredible drama be found with you as the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' precious name, we pray, grant us heartburn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.